Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, everyone. Judge Andrew Napolitano here for Judging Freedom. Today is Monday, February 5th, 2024. Alistair Crook is with us in just a moment on why do Western governments use war as a justification for their existence? But first this. Judge Napolitano here. Do you know that we the people have reached $34 trillion plus in debt? It's unsustainable and it's growing. Our government is addicted to printing money and it's not going to stop. And if you believe that, as I do, then you need to understand why gold prices will continue to rise along with our staggering debt. In this report called $3,200 Gold, it explains how rising debt will cause the value of gold to rise and it could reach $3,200 an ounce. Listen to some of the stats that I pulled from this report. They make a very strong case for the likely surge in the value of gold. In 2002, gold was $256 an ounce and the national debt was $6.5 trillion. Last year, the debt broke through $33 trillion and gold exceeded $2,000 an ounce. That is a 400% rise in the debt and a 700% staggering rise in the value of gold. And now the debt has hit 34 trillion and the value of gold continues to rise along with it. It's great information from my friends at Lear Capital and I encourage every one of you to call today and get your copy of this report. There's no obligation to purchase. It's a free report. It's free education. Call 800-511-4620 or go to learjudgenap.com. And when you talk to my friends at Lear, tell them the judge sent you. Alistair, good day, my dear friend, and welcome here. We have a, a lot to talk about. Big picture, the Western world using war as justification and the continued uh, annihilation of Gaza. But before we get there, just a couple of questions uh, on Ukraine. Since last we spoke, the president of Ukraine has made it known that he plans to fire General Zeluzhny. <laughs> Sounds like he can't can't seem to do this. But when an announcement like this is made, and when it was preceded by his commander, General Zeluzhny, saying, I need another half million men who simply don't exist, what does this tell you about the state uh, of affairs in the Ukrainian government and militarily between Ukraine and Russia? It tells us the center is coming apart. I mean, the central part, the, the command structure, the sort of inner core of Ukraine, 
in Kiev is coming apart. They're fighting on all levels. They're fighting with each other. Yeah, the, there is a, a, a big fight on. Victoria Newland, the, the great fixer of Ukraine, uh, made a hurried rush there. And everyone thought that after that, you know, it would be fixed because she'd laid down the law. But it wasn't. Still going on. And as far as I know, Solution is still the commander-in-chief and Zelensky is still in his office. But forces are massing around Poroshenko, around Zelensky, in the Rada, in the parliament, um, to form, if you like, um, to be in waiting to take power when the moment is right. So we're seeing really the coming apart, the fragmentation of the, the core element uh, to you, Ukraine. Is there any question but that this will end either in an obliteration of the uh, Zelensky government or in a negotiated settlement? And that will probably, one of those two events will probably happen this year. Um, when you talk about negotiated settlement, it, it will be um, capitulation. I mean, you can call that a negotiated settlement, but basically Russia will set the terms uh, for the political future. Um, uh, is it going to happen? I think, you know, effectively the war, I mean, <laughs> the war is over, but not quite finished. It is settled. I mean, we know who has won the war. We know that it can continue in the same vein. Russia is gaining ground all the time. Um, and it's really a question of whether there will be, if you like, a decision to capitulate in Kiev, which would be very difficult under Zelensky, or else Russia will continue until there's really no choice but to capitulate. And that's been made pretty clear by, by Putin. The government the existing government with the extreme ultranationalness is not acceptable to Russia. It has to go on the, in their view. And so that will be the final point. They're not going to negotiate with um, the leaders there unless they take a very different stance and understand that this is um, the outcome of the war is settled. Settled, but not quite over. It's still going on a bit in Avdevka, but even that is almost settled. What will it take for Victoria Nuland and her uh, neocon colleagues to recognize that this whole experiment was an unmitigated disaster from day one to the present? I, you know, I don't think people like that ever admit it. And they will go on with the justifications and say, you know, well, it would have been, it was a great idea. It was just, uh, you know, Zelensky let us down, the Ukrainians let us down. Everyone let them down. You know, I think if you recall, I mean, it was exactly the same with Vietnam. At the end of it, I remember, you know, all those sort of senior officers from, um, <clears throat> that were at West Point and um, uh, uh, talk, uh, training the, the troops wrote all those books. I saw some of them, which said, actually, you know, we could have won in Vietnam. We were winning, but the politicians let us down. It'll be the same. Right, right. Uh, why do, well, one last question. Uh, if the United States Congress comes to some sort of an agreement and adds 50 or 60 billion uh, either in cash or military equipment, 
to the 13 billion a year for four years that the EU uh, is now giving Ukraine. Where will this money go? <laughs> I, I, I would think a lot of it, some of it will even probably come to new estates in Italy. Um, we heard that the mayor of Kiev has bought some huge property in Germany. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, you know, at the end of these projects, when everyone can see that it is crumbling, the aim is is to steal as much as you can and run for it. Uh, and I think that's basically what, what will happen. It, you know, you can see the money is already dried up at the outer periphery, and it's getting closer and closer to the central core. And now the central core can barely survive on what's coming. And in Europe, there's panic because they've realized, you know, they're going to be left having to finance Ukraine for the foreseeable future if things are as they are, with the idea they fear that um, uh, Mr. Trump might win the election. <laughs> it looks fairly likely. And so they're in a, in a panic about that. And I don't think they're very confident that the money is going to come from, um, from Congress for Ukraine. So they're left, you know, holding the baby. And they're not very happy about that. And they can't sustain it, frankly. You know, they were, the, the, the day it passed, the 50 billion and uh, Hungary uh, uh, folded on, on it. You know, there were agricultural protests across Europe. Mm. In Brussels, in Italy, in France, really major protests. Why? Because, you know, they've lost all their subsidies that, you know, for agricultural use of diesel, all these things, the tax breaks. So, you know, at the same time that they were skimming it off the, the, the farmers and reducing them to penury, they were busily sending 50 billion or committing 50 billion to Ukraine. It didn't go very well, that. It didn't look very good. None of that was explained uh, in, in mainstream media in the U.S. This is the first I've heard of the suffering of farmers and the uh, reduction of their, uh, their tax credits. Uh, switching uh, gears to what's going on uh, in uh, Iraq, what do you think is Joe Biden's goal with these 85 or 90 attacks on people in a country uh, we spent $2 trillion to liberate from Saddam Hussein, theoretically, uh, 20 years ago. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.com. Dot edu slash podcast. 
Well, you know, it's uh, I've described it, I suppose, somewhat um, rudely, as psychotherapy missile attacks. You know, these are not intended to inflict great hurt. They haven't touched Iran, by the way. Nothing. IRGC bases, Iranians haven't been touched by these. It's been very clear that they've decided, has obviously been a long debate in Washington, and they've decided they don't want to do anything against Iran. So these are, are minor attacks. Not it hasn't affected any of the militia because they emptied all their bases beforehand. And, and so mostly the attacks have been some of them have been on ammunition storages belonging to the Iraqi government and on other things of very little consequence. And I, that's why I call it psychotherapy. The aim is really basically to sort of like in, in, in Yemen, is to say, look, you know, here we are. We could hurt you, you know, but we're just doing a little slap on the wrist for now. But we want quiet in the region. We want to lower the level so that we can get Gaza sorted out and then everything will go quiet and we can go back to the world as it was. Only that's not going to happen. Here's uh, an interview yesterday with uh, Admiral uh, Kirby and one of my former uh, colleagues at, uh, at Fox News uh, arguing that um, since we tell the terrorists or supposed terrorists, since we tell the militia, militias that we're going to attack if they get hit if they don't move they're really the world's dumbest militia cut number four chris militia leaders can't say they weren't warned and if any of them were still around the target areas they are the world's dumbest terrorists was it too much of a delay two thoughts there first uh, it's not like we held back any notification that we were going to respond if our troops were attacked i mean the president's been clear uh, we will respond so it's it's not as if uh, prior to the attack last weekend, that the militia groups in the IRGC and folks in Tehran didn't know that we were going to take seriously any attack uh, on our troops or on our facilities. And then, with the specific attack that uh, that we that we struck, uh, the tar targets we struck on Friday night. I mean, you want to do this in a deliberate way. You want to do it. Uh, you want to carefully select your targets. You want to make sure that uh, that all the parameters are in place to have good good effects, including factoring in the weather. I mean, these attacks were using manned aircraft. You want to make sure your pilots can get in and get out safely. So there was a lot of planning that went into that. Uh, and uh, again, the Pentagon believes we had good effect that we uh, that we hit what we were aiming at. What is their purpose, in your view? Uh, with the so-called pinprick uh, attacks, as as numerous as they were. And remember, they're using B-1 bombers, which are enormous and can drop a 2,000-pound uh, bomb if they want. Uh, well, the par parameters were the opposite. The parameters, quite clearly, were not to cause any really serious uh, damage. I mean, there were none of those militias were really hit or hurt. Yes, some warehouses, some empty sheds were, I mean, it was a very expensive demolition of, um, of property, but nothing has really affected the capabilities. Um, the, the weapons that were damaged were mostly uh, Iraqi official weapons rather than militia weapons. Mm. Now, uh, what, what's going on, as I say, is simply really trying to signal that, you know, the U.S. really doesn't want a big war doesn't want a wider war, 
But if only you just be quiet and stop your attacks on U.S. bases, then we can all get to go along together. Except that it's ended up with the Iraqis being very angry. I mean, even if they were not uh, killed in large numbers. I mean, it was mostly night watchmen, poor people, who suffered rather than the troops or anything like this. Um, but they're angry because they they think about Iraq as a sovereign country, incorrectly, but they feel that they should be sovereign. And they don't like, you know, suddenly being having B-1 bombers drop bombs over them, even if it didn't hurt very much. It, it uh, hurts their esteem. It hurts their pride. It hurts their nationalism. So they've reacted, and they've already immediately the 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 bombings finished. They attacked Ain al uh, Assad base in Iraq. They've attacked the Konoko in Syria. So the attacks are going on. It's just the same as in Yemen. You know, America goes and does these this sort of psychotherapy with a few missiles and says, "Now you must understand the message." But they don't get it. In fact, what happens is they they get angry, and the retaliation, the reaction is the greater. Uh, one example of that was the Iraq has now cut off the oil supply to Jordan, because they say Jordan uh, was involved in the attacks with its aircraft. Mm. Uh, tell me how this works uh, from the diplomatic side. Would uh, Secretary Blinken or National Security Advisor uh, Sullivan call up uh, the French president, the German chancellor, the British prime minister, the Polish uh, president, etc., cetera, uh, and tell them what's going on and say, look, we really don't want to start a war. This is going to be very limited. The president's under a lot of pressure. We have to do something. How do you suspect, what do you expect happened diplomatically in the two weeks between the deaths of those three American soldiers, the injury of the 38 or 39 others, and these attacks over the weekend? Oh, yeah. The message will have been passed by the Swiss embassy in Iran. Um, that is the uh, conduit um, to Iran for the United States. So they will have passed the message. And the Iranians would have informed the Iraqis. But uh, I'm sure that Washington, through its amb ambassadors, will have uh, informed the Iraqi prime minister and the Jordanians and other interested parties. I don't know if they informed the Syrian. <laughs> I'm sure they did in some way, but I don't know about that. But yes, the word have gone out. You know, we don't want no widening of the war, no raising of the flames of this war. We want all of this to be quiet so we can concentrate on trying to get peace in Gaza and sorting out Lebanon so that we can all go back to the old normal, the status quo ante. But if you wanted to start a war uh, using a sort of uh, inverse false flag, if you will, wouldn't you just put your troops into harm's way as sitting ducks and wait for the adversary to uh, attack or kill them, as immoral and reprehensible as that is, uh, and use that as an excuse to attack? Isn't this something that Victoria Nuland and Lindsey Graham would, would, would mm -hmm. love to uh, confront? Uh, well, that's why they've always tried to keep the troops there. And you remember that Trump, when he was president, tried to remove them and wasn't allowed to do that. He wanted them out of Syria and out of Iraq. And uh, he wasn't allowed to do that. 
Um, and uh, of course, they they want them there. But now there's a new factor in it. I mean, the overall the overall message coming out of the White House is we do not want a replay of Kabul. We don't want to see you know American troops in humiliation being sort of um, hurried out of Iraq or Syria with you know the militia sort of fighting you know on their <coughs> on their coattails firing at them planes as they take off and go so that's the overriding political message is you know we can't afford another Kabul in an election year let's uh, transition over to uh, Israel uh, as far as you know is the United States still beating uh, a drum for the two-state solution uh, as unlikely or maybe as impossible as that seems in the near future uh, yes, I mean, this is uh, where we effectively are. I mean, we're doing, uh, uh, the United States is really doing a, a, an exercise in posture, in trying to say, you know, that we can get everything quiet and down, the level of violence down by massaging it and massaging it politically. Um, but the means that they're using, uh, are really nonsense. I mean, the two-state solution. Um, they talk about it. They talk about recognizing a Palestinian state now, um, according to Tom Friedman and to David Ignatius. Um, but uh, how, you can't do just that. I mean, first of all, the sort of rules about recognizing a state, it has to control its territory, control its people, and have a real government. And, of course, Palestinians don't have any of that. Um, but more than that, I mean, you know, what is the main block to a Palestinian state is the settlements in the West Bank. And these settlements really came into being after 73, the 73 war, um, when um, at that point, um, Israel was forced to hand back to Egypt the land that it had occupied during the 60, earlier 67 war. But as part of that, when they had to hand back the land, that they had been occupying to Egypt, to Sinai. Um, it, they, it started a process by which these nationalist groups and others said, no more, we're going to grab and we're going to hold everything we can of the, of the occupation. We're not going to go down this route ever again. And so we've moved further and further away from any uh, political solution any ability to have a two-state solution. Look, uh, you know, there are, the figures vary, but say 700 to 800,000 settlers. And mm. I, I think I've mentioned before, um, Sharon actually sent me to meet them. And he sent with his top aide, uh, Rafi Eitan, and I went to the settlements. And they were told to speak to me freely. Uh, I was Sharon's guest, the prime minister. And my goodness, they did. And it was shocking. What I did mean, they tell you? They were fanatics. They hate the Palestinians, I mean, with a degree of fervor that really was shocking. And they hate anyone that interferes with them. They were quite clear even then. You know, they would fight to the end against the Israeli army, Israeli government, anyone that tried to remove them. And, I mean, these people are real zealots. I mean, 
I see, you know, the one of those um, sort of articles from being put out by the White House briefing. You know, oh well, we just displaced them somewhere else. Oh come on, this is a big. They, it would be a sea of blood, and the Israeli army, who have a great deal of settlers in their midst, most of their senior command are settlers. I mean, are not going to do this job. Eight hundred thousand. How are you going to get rid of those? It's just fantasy. This is just what is being spun out of the White House in order to try and say we're managing the difficulty. And in fact, what they're not doing—they're not only not managing it, or managing it in a particularly stupid way, by trying to pretend that a Palestinian state is possible, when the whole point of the settlement action uh, was to stop a Palestinian uh, state coming. And they, and by doing this, they ignore the real thing, which is that Israel has lost it, the principles, the structures, the um, system on which it existed. Zionism was, um, if you like, exploded. The principles on which it lay um, were exploded on the 7th of October by the Hamas um, explosion out of Gaza at that time. Security went. And so, you know, Israel is in an existential bind. And they know that, you know, simply repeating the mantra of a two-state solution which is impossible to actually implement. Talking about Saudi Arabia and, and, if you like, normalization will be solve everything. Everyone knows this isn't the case. And so Israel is getting closer and closer to this point where you know, it's in a, it, there's a big collision between the rejectionist of, any, of a Palestinian state, rejectionists, of what happened in 73 with Egypt and the Arab objection and the Iranian rejectionists who say, you know, we can't, how, you know, peace with Israel could be possible, but how can we live with a potentially genocidal state that uses overwhelming violence to resolve all of its problems? and wants to grab as much land between the river and the sea and leave no Palestinians uh, in the way. I don't think, you know, this is the fundamental problem and um, the Washington and the Europeans are simply producing unworkable palliatives and saying, oh, well, we're managing it mm. very well and we've got plans for this. First of all, we'll hurt Iran, which didn't get very far. And then we will come up with a, a, a Palestinian state. I mean, and what they are suggesting is that they will have some sort of pseudo recognition of a Bantustan uh, that is posing as a state. It'll have a flag and a stamp, but none of the attributes of a state it will be demilitarized. It will be without political power. It will be, if you like, uh, at, at the mercy of the security forces of Israel. Before we go, I would like you to weigh in on uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's dilemma about uh, the hostages and a ceasefire combined with the threat of uh, one of his two extreme right-wing partners, uh, Ben Gavir, who basically said, if there's a ceasefire, we're out of the government. If we're out of the government, Likud does not have a coalition that is a majority 
and it's time for new elections and BB's out of uh, office. What do you think he'll do? I, I don't think it's so difficult for him, actually. I saw, you know, that this was supposed to be, according to one expert, a sort of frog in the throat for Netanyahu. What's the frog? I mean, he's been against a two-state solution from the beginning, and many Israelis are against a two-state solution, and many Palestinians and Arabs in the Islamic world don't believe in it either. Uh, and so what's what's the problem? He's already announced, and which has serious support in Israel, um, of taking a military, putting a military, if you like, net across from the river to the sea to secure the entire area of greater Israel uh, and to react to any... Um, any opposition to that with, as usual, absolute violence. What about the hostages? Are they uh, no longer on the front burner for the Israeli government? Uh, they're not in the front burner because, I mean, first of all, we, we have to see the deal that was orchestrated, which, is, was, which was managed by um, the head of um, CIA and by Qatar and Egypt. I mean, is uh, is a very is one that um, I don't think is likely to survive very long if it's ever accepted by Hamas, because it's full of holes. I mean, first of all, Hamas is supposed to give up women and young people and elderly. At the outset, there isn't a ceasefire. There, the ceasefire only comes after they've given these hostages, and then the ceasefire goes along. And at any point in this process then Israel can go back to military um, action. It's said at the end of any one phase, military uh, Israel has the right to go back to bombing Gaza. I mean, it's not exactly uh, a political settlement. It may be used by Hamas to find some sort of tactical advantage. I think that the whole of this process that is going at the moment uh, with Qatar and Egypt trying to persuade Hamas, put a lot of political pressure on Hamas to do it, really is because um, the Israeli army and Israel needs a break. It's tired. It's had, you know, it's suffered a lot of losses both in Gaza uh, and in the north. Uh, and they need to reconstruct some of their uh, military before they um, turn their attention to pushing Hezbollah back across the Litani. Can the Israeli army uh, slaughter in Gaza and attack Hezbollah at the same time without fear of bringing in another state actor to resist them? I, you, you know, I, and I've said this before, uh, when and if, and I think it's inexorable that sooner or later, because this is the only way out of their dilemma, they haven't succeeded in Gaza. They're not succeeding in the West Bank. A Palestinian state is not desirable from their point of view. How do they break out of it? They're looking for something that is will confirm a victory uh, for the government and for Israel that they can rejoice in, and a victory over Hezbollah would be a great achievement. And I think it's the this sort of catharsis is seen to be necessary um, it, it, by many Israelis in order to 
bring um, Israel together. But by doing that, they may be setting their own um, demise because a war with Hezbollah is not at all predictable as to the outcome um, in the way in which it's thought. It is something that could bring about the end of Israel. Alistair uh, Crook, always a pleasure, my dear friend. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your uh, insight. We'll see you again yeah. next week. Thank you very much. Of course. Another uh, brilliant uh, analysis of the Middle East mess. Coming up later this morning, Eastern Time, Ray McGovern, and then Larry Johnson, and this afternoon, Eastern Time, Colonel Douglas McGuire. Judge Napolitano for Judging Freedom.